Grace and peace. It's good to be uh, to be here with you today. Um, blessed by the conversations, the hard conversations as well um, about these topics and issues. And I hope today to encourage you and to build you up in your faith. Cause that's why we're here, right? To remember why we are here, uh, not just here at this conference, but here uh, in our lives as we go back on campus and to our every day. We have to be. Uh, mindful of the mission of God uh, in his world. And how do we fit in that mission? And I believe this topic of restoration is a good one for us here today. Turn with us to Romans 8, 26 to 30. That is our text for today. Romans 8, 36 or 26 to 30. That'll be our topic today. It's encouraging that some of y'all stayed. I think last year, so, some people left there at the end. It was kind of like, dang, I wish they would be able to stay. But a lot of y'all stayed. And I don't think it's because of the, uh, we don't have like desserts afterwards, do we? You know what I mean? Because that's usually the case. But it's encouraging to see y'all still here. That means that you still want God's word. You want to learn and grow in your faith. Romans 8, 26 through 30. Amen. That would be our text. So we did ask you to join us in exploring and finding the meaning of being restored as image bearers of God. And we first looked at how God created us in his image and how we fell into sin. And now we will conclude with how we are restored in Christ. Augustine uh, wrote uh, The City of God. Anybody familiar with Augustine, the North uh, African theologian who I believe to be the greatest theologian ever? Um I do believe he was black, by the way, but that's another debate. He said, we indeed recognize in ourselves the image of God that is of the supreme trinity, an image which, though it be not equal to God, or rather, though it be very far removed from him, being neither co-eternal nor, to say in a word, co-substantial with him, is yet nearer to him in nature than any other of his works and is destined to be yet restored, that it may bear a still closer resemblance. I do believe Augustine was right. I hope to encourage you today, to exhort you today, to bear a closer resemblance of your restored position in Jesus. Or, today you might not know Jesus. I hope that you come to terms with your condition before God, whether it be that you are a Christian, Maybe you haven't been living as a Christian as you should, or you don't know Jesus here today. Either way, I hope that the text encourages you to come to repentance or to build you up in your faith. Let's read Romans 8, 26 to 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To God be the glory. Father, we pray that your word would bear uh, fruit in our hearts, God, that it would take root in our hearts, that we will bear fruit of it. I pray, God, that your word would pierce through the hearts and minds of your people today. And I pray for those who have not come to saving faith that they will come to saving faith today, to know, God, that it is not enough to bear image, to bear your image. We have to bear your image in such a way that we are intentional about your glory and your honor. And so, Lord, pierce our hearts today. Help us today. Help me not to be about them, but to be about you. And being about you, I am about them. And I pray that it will be the other way around as well, that we will be to your glory for our good. We ask for this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. 
Quick context, Romans was written about 58 AD. And when writing this to the church in Rome, Paul desired to visit Rome and Spain. However, he was prevented from going there. And on his journey back to Jerusalem with good news about what God had done to the Gentiles, he found it necessary to write a large portion of his teaching to the church there at Rome that was a mixed congregation, Jews and Gentiles. And so the concern in this letter seems to be that Paul wanted both Jews and Gentiles to know and teach the sovereignty of God in salvation. So he carefully provided a body of work in the book of Romans inspired by the Spirit of God to exhort and encourage both Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus. And so Romans contains the most holistic and systematic exposition of all of Paul's teaching. It also gives us, as the other letters do, insight into the heart of God for his people. So he wanted to guard the church's unity. And I believe that part of this conference is that, to preserve the unity of believers on campus. The identity of the church there was more than their cultural upbringing. It's nice to be a Gentile. It's nice to be a Jew, but we're more than that. He wanted their identity to be rooted in the grace of God in Christ. As what happened then in our tribal differences today, we have made God a God of race. We have forgotten that God is a God of grace. Amen? And so today I want to address you all as image bearers. I want to begin our approach to the text with three statements from the passage before us today. They're in your package. Statement number one, the true believer in Jesus Christ is restored and God continues to help when the believer is weak. The true believer in Jesus Christ is restored and God continues to help when the believer is weak. Not if the believer is weak, when the believer is weak. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So first, I want to start with the definition to what I mean by restored. To be restored means to return someone to their original state before God. To return someone to their original state before God. So Adam and Eve were created in God's image and were in right standing with God because they were created without sin. But man fell into sin. And now the question is this, what has happened to image bearing and likeness after the fall? Gerald Bray said this, fallen human beings retain the image likeness of God, but use it in order to further their rebellion against him. What should have been our greatest glory has instead become our deepest shame. We have not been reduced to the state of animals, which would have been the case had the image of God been removed. But our rebellion against God has made us guilty of abusing the great gift and influence that he has given us. End quote. So in our original state, meaning how Adam and Eve fell, or actually how they lived, man was without fault and weakness before the fall. However, because of the fall, meaning when God's law was broken, Man became weak when it came to temptation. Can I get an amen? You know how it is when you get tempted? You start, oh snap, like, what's going on right now? My heart's being pulled. My energies are being pulled. My focus is being pulled from the very thing that I've professed to love, which is God. Disobedience to God's law continued. And even today, as we see in our world, we can be weak regarding the power of sin. Prior to our text, Paul had just explained that creation was subjected to futility. Because of the fall, creation groans, and we groan inwardly for that time when we will be adopted as children of God through the redemption of our bodies, Paul said. Paul speaks about this as our hope, but we are waiting for this with patience which can be very difficult. We have been restored. Amen. Are you a Christian here today? You've been restored. And that God has given you right standing with them, but 
We wait for the retention of our bodies, sometimes impatiently. And we need help in the meantime, don't we? So to help us being image bearers, we now need the Spirit's help. Image bearing means that you live a life that gives evidence of your faith in God, even in times of weakness. However, as you know, if you're honest, we have yet to do this perfectly. The weakness spoken of here means that the Holy Spirit helps us in times of debilitation. When we are spiritually impaired, when we are limited and frail, when we lack confidence and feel inadequate, when we feel lack or incapable of doing what God has called us to do, that is what it means to be weak. Been there? Done that. When we experience these things and come face to face with them, the Spirit helps us. What does weakness look like and what is at the heart of weakness as image bearers? What does weakness look like at the core of the human soul? What is at the bottom of it? I found it to be idolatry. Idolatry causes a believer to be debilitated, spiritually impaired, limited, and frail. Idolatry will rob you of your confidence in God, and it could be at the root of your inadequacy. I believe it is. Worshiping anything or anyone other than God speaks of the opposite of your restored position. You will experience the most incredible lack and incapability when worshiping anything other than God. Been there? Done that. This is what it means to be weak. This is what it looks like when an image bearer exchanges the glory of God for images. And our culture is saturated with imagery. Ungodly imagery. Idolatry is worshiping an image or figure that replaces God, which is why God forbade it. So what is at the root of weakness with idolatry? What's beneath the idols? Lack of patience. Lack of trust in God. An exalted view of yourself. And so the Holy Spirit will help us when tempted and tired, losing our patience. Our mistake as image bearers comes when we lose trust and patience with God. One can also fall and be trapped in an exalted view of themselves. Your restored position should produce humility, not self-exaltation. I don't like prideful Christians. They're out there. I call them bougie Christians. They got to have everything right. And all their friendships got to be right. They don't like mess in their life. I'm a messy person. I need Jesus every day. I need the gospel preached to me every day. I'm high maintenance. Amen? So I need friendships that could bear with me, bear with my dysfunctions. Remember that they're dysfunctional as well because having it all together is a dysfunction because you don't really have it all together. We need humility, not self-exaltation. What happens is that we begin to carve out images in place of God. The enticement to sin and its fulfillment happens when you give in to carving out your own God, which is fashioned as a result of self-exaltation. This is why we need the Spirit's help. The enemy knows how to tempt us so that we do not become image bearers who reveal who God is in our lives. So what is the goal of this temptation of idolatry? What is the goal of it? What is the reason for it? If we are restored, what will be the instrument that will cause us to be ineffective and unable to minister? It will be an idol. What is the goal at the end of the day? Turn with me to Psalm 115, 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, Psalm 115, 1 through 8. I'm going to show you what an idol is out to do in your life. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. 
Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Talking about idols. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The end goal of, of idolatry is to rob you of image bearing. Idolatry seeks to rob you of your speech. It seeks to blind you from seeing. It seeks to rob you from hearing what you need to hear. It seeks to rob you from feeling and walking. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. This comes naturally to us, so we need the Spirit's help. We need His help. How does the Spirit help us? The text tells us He intercedes for us, making our image-bearing possible. Intercession here means to plead on behalf of another. It is to plead for the sake of someone else, which the Spirit does, listen, with groanings too deep for words. There are three that groan in the book of Romans, particularly in chapter nine, in chapter 8. By groaning, the term means to sigh as the result of deep concern or stress. And so we see in Romans 8.22 that creation groans creation groans Romans 8:22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now why because we fell we're not being the children of God we're not being the representation that God wanted for creation number 2 restored image bearers also groan Romans 8:23 and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, uh, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So both creation and believers groan for the time when the redemption of God's people takes place. And then lastly, like we read already in verse 26, the spirit groans. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So along with creation and us here today, the Spirit groans, meaning the Spirit expresses our griefs with deep concerns on our behalf. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you could say, I have not been showing likeness and image bearing. You could say that. I could say that. That could be true. But the good news is that God does not stop at the condition of your heart. Praise God. Instead, you know what God does? He searches your heart. And what, what is it? What's God going to find there? Sin. A heart that's deceitful above all things desperately wicked you yourself can't even know your own heart the world tells you to follow your heart God says your heart is tripping you you can't follow any of it but you know what God doesn't stop at your heart he goes into what is in the mind of the spirit on your behalf he searches your heart yet he knows what is in the mind of the spirit and in context, what is in the mind of the Spirit is intercession for you. God doesn't stop at your sinful heart. He goes to what the Spirit is saying on your behalf. He's helping you because we can be weak. So the true believer in Jesus Christ is restored and God continues to help when the believer is weak because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
who have times of weakness and difficulty. And so the Spirit does this perfectly according to the will of God. And what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification. Is that easy? What is God's will for my life? Your sanctification, your holiness, your personal holiness, your conformity to his image is his will for your life. Is that simple? That simple. I don't know, you know, if, if this God checking me out is God's will or homegirl over here is God's will. God's will is your sanctification. He wants you to be holy. So if homegirl or homeboy is going to get in the way of your holiness, already that's not God's will. That's simple. Do they, do they belong to a local church? Hello? Are they solid? Do they love the Lord? God's will is your sanctification. Image bearing is not a to-do list. It is a result of what God has begun in us. And it is God continuing to help us when we are weak. This is what we are called to do, saints, to live as restored even when we are weak. And when we are weak, we should trust the Holy Spirit to take our weaknesses to God on our behalf. Statement number two. The true believer in Jesus Christ is called according to his purpose to live out the restoration. Verse 28 of our text. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. To be restored means to return someone to their original state before God to love God. Who are those that love God? Do you love God here today? Do you? Some of y'all like, I know what the preacher's going to do next. Better be careful how I answer this. Listen, the ones loved by God are those who have been restored. In our original state, man had perfect communion with God. Love for God was not tainted by sin in the beginning. However, we live in a sinful world and in us we have sinful tendencies. So what does love for God look like in a fallen world? We got to ask the question, do I really love God? The question can be answered by asking ourselves, how have we done in our image bearing? To be restored means that a love for God has been restored. We were haters of God before faith, and now the love of God is grounded in us in hope. And Romans 5, 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been he just doesn't say given to us. He says it's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Poured. Big bucket all over your heart. His love has been given to you. I was thinking about the image of the priests in the Old Testament when they had to, you know, commit sacrifices in the sacrificial system. I remember reading. And, and how one of the priests actually poured buckets of blood on the altar to cover the whole thing, to make sure that all of it was red. That's the picture I got when we see the love of God being poured all over you. Not just some, and God's not holding back. He's giving you all of himself. Sadly, we don't do that in return for him. Everyone is born as an image bearer. However, only those born again are called into a life of image bearing with the love of God restored. And because we as believers can sometimes be weak in our image bearing, we have help in our calling. God does not call you to disqualify you. Instead, he calls you out of being disqualified and qualifies you for the call by grace. I like that. I'll say it again. God does not call you to disqualify you. Instead, he calls you out of being disqualified and qualifies you for the call. Amen. God's love for you qualifies you for the benefit of all things working together for your good. And so the spirit intercedes for you when things seem not good. Nevertheless, the quote, not good in your life is good. Because it will all work out according to his purpose. 
So even the things that aren't working in your favor are working in your favor. Because all will work out according to his purpose. God's calling qualified you as restored as one who loves him and has been called according to his purpose. So our restoration from God's call, he secures our call by the spirit of God interceding for us. I remember the, you know, this uh, story in John 11 of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And I remember Jesus calling him out. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who died, came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus told, he told people, unbind him and let him go. And his life was restored. And so were we. So was I who was lost in my sin, not looking for God, lost in my sin, destroying my life. God called me out from a destroyed light and gave me life. See, we have been called out from being dead and we are now restored. And so the true believer in Jesus Christ is called, but called to what? We're called to his purpose, not ours. And that's the tension, isn't it? We got a lot of plans for us, don't we? A lot of purposes, a lot of things we have plans for. You ever thought about maybe that's not what God wants for you? Maybe we should have stepped back and said, you know what, God, what do you want for me? I know what I want for me. I got my plans. I got, what do you want, Lord? Maybe some of y'all are called to the mission field after you graduate college. You ever think about that? To leave your comforts, to leave your families. That might be his purpose. We're called to his purpose, not ours. This is where the battle of showing the restorative work of Christ is in our lives. It is in the battle for purpose. If restoring means returning someone to their original state before God, and listen, we got to ask the question, what does storing up mean? What, what does it mean to store something? We're talking about restore. What about storing something? Storing means keeping what is already there after the fall. The battle lies in what remains stored in our hearts. What is in our heart? Jesus says that's where all of life comes from. We haven't asked that question. Yeah, we can talk about being restored, but what has been stored into our hearts? What have we been storing in our heart? What have we been consuming? What preoccupies us? What do we do in our private time? In the closet where Jesus said we should be praying. Instead, we might be doing some other things we're not supposed to be doing, saints. What is in our hearts? God's calling is a calling out from your fallen condition, which means that there has to be a removal of the old and an installation of new things. Paul spoke about storing up wrath on the day of judgment because of a hardened heart. And you know what? God has called us out of that. Apart from Christ, what is stored in our hearts is our own purpose, which leads to destruction. And if left to our purpose, we would be storing up wrath and preserving only the fallen condition. However, because we have been restored, we are called according to his purpose and not ours. Therefore, we show our calling and our restoration to the world so they can believe and receive forgiveness. That's our purpose. It's his purpose, not ours. Live like you were called and live in such a way that you have been called out from the fallen world we live in. So have you known that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And those who are called according to his purpose, do you live for his purpose? Do you live as you are called? Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him not to live in abundance. He bids him come and die. Maybe that is why showing our restored position in God has been so difficult. If God is calling us out of the world, then it follows that we cannot do what the world does. Have we looked like them? Have we been light and darkness? Or have we been darkness? Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Not just wear one around your neck, y'all. 
That's easy. I know a lot of brothers in the church, they got nice fat joints right here, like a nice cross. And I'm like, yo, where'd you get that? They, you know, they got it from online somewhere. And it's, it's pretty dope, like a big cross here and all that. Then I'm like, that's all you got, though? That's the only cross you're carrying is around your neck? God's called us for more than that, saints. Is losing my life, my way of doing things, my desires in the world good? Yes. All things work together for good. Even when I feel like last place or that life is not going the way it should, God is still good. None of these things change the truth that I've been restored. I have been called according to his purpose. And I have help when I am weak at it. When I am weak, he shows himself strong. God does everything according to his purpose, not mine. Paul understood this truth in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, even though he had needs. But I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And of course, the most famous verse in the Bible, one of them, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The bracelets that we wear. We forget the verses prior to that. Paul had times of being hungry. Do you think you would feel blessed being hungry and not being able to eat? Do you think you will be blessed by not having abundance? No, he was content through it all. A false gospel teaches you that to have abundance and to be blessed is God's will for your life. And that's how you know you're in favor with God. Paul tells us differently, both in Romans and Philippians. We will have times of weaknesses and lack. But all things will work out for our good. Because our calling depends not on what we have. It depends on who we have. Amen. You have Christ. That's all you need. Christ sent the Holy Spirit to help us when we feel like we need more than Christ. He, he helps us with groanings too deep for words. Just because you are weak and wrestling with sin, it does not mean you are not restored. Now, that's a message that bothers some people and might bother you here today. I'm not saying that someone who practices sin is a Christian. First John tells us you can't be a Christian and practice sin. But let's keep it real. Sin is something that we face in a fallen world, especially you young people. I was young before. Straight up. I'm turning 48 this year. I got three kids out of the house. I'm an empty nester. My back hurts every time I wake up in the morning, y'all. I'm old now. I'm, at, I'm on this side of life. I've been there when I was young and things were running in my heart to rebel against God. And I live in a culture of rebellion. I go to classrooms where professors are trying to rob me of my view of God. Then I get out of the classroom and there's parties going on that are tempting me to go there. And God is asking me to be strong. God is asking me to love him above it all. Yes. And when you fall short, he can help you in your weakness. The true believer in Jesus Christ is still called according to his purpose to live out the restoration even when weak which is only possible by grace. There has been a lie that says we can live a purpose-driven life. That's a lie. What drives us in a restoration is not our purpose, but God's purpose to glorify himself. I love the Westminster Catechism that says, what is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God has restored his glory into our hearts and he calls us to live this out. So what in our restoration proves that we have been restored? I'm going to give you a statement number three to close three things. The true believer in Jesus Christ is predestined, justified, and glorified, which serves as proof of our restoration. What does it mean to be foreknown by God? To foreknow is to know beforehand or in advance. And according to our text, it is to foreknow someone, not something, not an event. He foreknow, he foreknew you before you were even here. Check out that detail. It is to know the reality before it's real and events before they occur. Do you know that your restoration in Christ was real before it was real to you? Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. I'm just going to read it. Don't get mad at me. Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose me before the world began? Yes. Did he know you were going to be restored before the foundation of the world? Yes. Will he keep you then? Yes. He will even help you in your weakness. In the meantime, God never learns or has potential to learn. He can't be better than who he is. He is good. He is great. And he knew that you would be you before you knew you were you. Before you knew you were you, he knew you before you were you. That's power. That's intimacy. That's real. He foreknew you. God's foreknowledge proves that your restoration has been sealed if you genuinely believe in Jesus. Your restoration was planned and set, which is why Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He got you. God had foreknown that you and I would be restored image bearers. This means that God, because he is a covenant-keeping God, will never default on the covenant he made to us. He's not someone in this marriage relationship, which, by the way, that's what he calls us, his bride. He's not one that says, oh, I'm going to dip out when things get rough. You know, he doesn't have a prenup. Listen, if this doesn't work out, you're not going to take all I got. <laughs> That's not going to happen in this relationship. No, he's in it till the end. When he puts that ring on you when you're saved, he's going to preserve you and keep you because you are his. And he loves you. He's a committed covenant-keeping God. This is so important because when bearing fruit, providing proof of our restoration it has to come from confidence in Christ's finished work and not in my propensity to fall into doubt. God had already known me before I was a reality and my conformity comes from God predestining me. So my image bearing, change, and adherence to God's law do not come from me. It comes from what God has done in me and through me and continues to do. For his glory. So what is the purpose of all this? He does it so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To be an example for us. Jesus stepped in first to be what we are supposed to be. So the reason for Jesus being the firstborn, meaning the first before others who were predestined and conformed, is going to the Father as the first raised in glory was for our need to be conformed. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, 
we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. I hear people say, man, you know, Jesus is restoring us back to the garden, the good old days. I don't, I don't rock with that. I believe we got better. Adam was tending the garden, had to grow his food and eat. Jesus restores us who, were, who fell because of the first Adam, and now we'll be seated with Christ. We're going to be up there seated with Christ. I don't want to go back to no garden where, you know, nah, that's not, that's not it. That's not it. I'm better suited to be with Christ in heaven, seated with him. To conform means to assimilate, to be similar in form, nature and style. What have you looked like? Paul used this specific word in the Greek in Philippians 3, 15 to 21. Let me read the Lexham English Bible. Turn with me to Philippians 3, 15 to 21 to help us. Philippians 3, 15 to 21. I'm almost done here. Starting in verse 15 of Philippians 3. Therefore, as many as are perfect, let us hold this opinion. And if you think anything differently, God will reveal this also to you. Only to what we have attained to the same hold on. Because fellow imitators of me, brothers, and observe those who walk in this way, just as you have us as an example. For many live of whom I spoke about to you many times, but now speak about even weeping as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is the stomach, and whose glory is in their shame, the ones who think on earthly things. For our commonwealth exists in heaven from which we also eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our humble body to be conformed to his glorious body in accordance with the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so there are two types of conformity in Philippians 3. Those whose God is their stomach. This is someone who lives for the earthly, who lives for their appetites, and then there's another, those who conform to Christ's glorious body. This is someone whose life assimilates to what God says in his word. It is someone who reflects their restored position in Christ in form, nature, and style. So the question is, what have you looked like? Not to yourself, because I know how, how, you know, I like to think that I'm a little... My wife reminds me sometimes when I don't look cute. Like, one to, let me tell you something about my whites, Greg. <laughs> she took a picture one time. I had these corduroy pants. I, was, I thought I was cute. Then I had like this uh, Nautica jacket. It did not match. And then she took a picture of it and then sent it to some of my homies and just started laughing, you know, with all of them. And then I'm in the group text and I'm like, Totally embarrassed. Me thinking I was okay walking, and then she was right, by the way, just to let you know. I thought I looked okay. But it took someone else to say, nah, that jacket ain't popping with those pants, bro. That ain't it. Sometimes we have that problem. We can't see what we look like. The question is, what have you looked like to others? What do fellow students see in your life? They're seeing something. They're seeing what you love. They're seeing what you desire. They're seeing what you're preoccupied with. Is it Christ? Paul brings forth three things that provide proof of a restored life in our text in verse 30. Things that we should be reflecting in our life. Verse 30 says, In those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our being predestined precedes being called. Now, I learned through word studies that there's a difference between the calling talked about in verse 28 and verse 30. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to, uh, to his purpose. Here in verse 28, it speaks of an invitation. It generally speaks of inviting people. 
in verse 28. But in verse 30, the calling is a call to someone by name. That is the difference between, in the Greek, kletos and kaleo. The calling here is personal, which means it is not a call to us generally, but to you and me. If the calling is personal, it should be evident. Restoration is personal and should be evident because God has called you and me to that very purpose. My restoration was real. The day I got saved, I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing all my foolishness because I became saved. I felt rescued. And then I tried to go back six months later. I remember going to a house party. My boys invited me back and they, I, I could hear them talk and say, hey, let's see what Los does because he's, he's, a, he's a church boy now. Let's see what he does. So I sat down there, they're playing all the music, all my homies or whatever. And we, you know, uh, we had these 40 bottles. I don't know if y'all still, you know, y'all shouldn't be drinking that, but if it's still out there, we had 40 bottles and all that. I remember taking one sip and felt a deep sense of conviction. And I had no taste for it. And I told them, I gotta go. I don't belong here. That's right. My calling was personal. Where when my church family wasn't there, I was still church. I was still Christian. This calling was personal. It changed my life. My restoration was real and personal because God is real and personal to me. You should take your restored position personally. It should be embraced. It should be evident and known that you are a walking miracle of God. You are. Are you near to him in nature? Are you bearing a resemblance of God in your life? You and I are predestined to do so in a way that our calling of, from God as image bearers is personal and evident. We've also been justified. Paul tells us that calling which is personal precedes justification. He predestines us and then he applies justification, which means to be vindicated, proven right and declared righteous without guilt. Your, rest, your, your restored position in Christ includes a life that has been declared in right standing with God, which you cannot change or contribute to. God doesn't justify you to unjustify you, then justify you again, then to unjustify you. When you were declared righteous, you were declared righteous. Your restored life and position in Christ should be evident, free from condemnation declaring your right standing with God. Your calling should be personal to you. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul here now speaks of justification preceding glorification. Glorification speaks of honor. It literally means to be clothed in splendor. We got new clothes. New clothes that speak of our future hope. Do you have hope, saints? I hope you do. You should, because you've been justified. You've been declared righteous. And one day, when, at the end of the day, when all this passes, you'll be glorified. Let me end with Romans 5, 1 through 11 with you. Let's read that together in closing. This is it. This is my final closing after the first three that I said I was going to close. That's how you know there's a preacher in the house. <laughs> Romans 5, 1 through 11. And I just want you all to really listen to this. This is God's word, his inspired word to his people. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. 
and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You have been reconciled. Live it. You've been restored. Live it. And when the world tempts you, live it. Live it. And when you're weak, the Spirit will pray for you. But groaning's too deep. And God doesn't stop at your heart, because if he did, we'd be guilty. He passes on to what the Spirit is saying on your behalf. God got you. Live it out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you will be with us. Thank you for this conference. We thank you for your word. I pray for your students, Lord, that are out there living in this world, God, tempted every day. God, would you preserve them? Would you fill their hearts with conviction and truth that they would run as Joseph did when faced with temptation, that they would run to you as their first option and not last? Lord God, I pray that what's before them, that fruit that looks so tempting, that they would remember your commands and decrees. First John talks about how your commandments are not burdensome. I pray that their hearts would see that your laws and decrees are not burdensome, but a delight. We love you and we thank you, God. We thank you for this conference. We ask you now to be glorified again in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Great talk.